Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f? Are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. An Erio's original. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Aftermath. Today, we're speaking with guest expert Kate Moore. Kate Moore is the New York Times and USA Today bestselling author of The Radium Girls. Let's hear what she has to say on this topic. Hi, Kate. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, I, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for asking me. Can you start off by giving us a little history on radium in the early 1900s? What was it used for? How was it marketed to the general public? Sure. So radium was first discovered by Marion Pierre Curie in 1898. And very quickly was sort of hailed as the greatest wonder of the world. It was seen as this wonder element. And it had this, you know, these astonishing properties. It had an immense radioactivity, you know, uh, the form of radium, the isotype of radium that was commercially exploited was radium-226. That has a half-life of 1,600 years. So an immense power that entrepreneurs, scientists, medical men were keen to harness. And people actually thought that because radium was that powerful for 1,600 years, it could perhaps hold the answer to human immortality or certainly increase longevity. So you actually found that it was marketed as a health tonic, as a sort of cure-all. So it, you could find it in your local drugstore to treat all manner of ailments, everything from sort of hay fever to gout. But people also drank it as, you know, radium water was a health tonic. And it was sort of seen to, you know, put 
the sparkle back into your middle age, for example. You know, people actually were encouraged to eat radium tablets because the newspapers said doing so would add years to their lives. So it really was seen as this wonder element. It was put in everything. So not only these medicinal and sort of health products, but also things like toothpaste and chocolates. Um, you could buy radium lingerie to boost your sex life. Um, so <laughs> it had the, you know, it had this extraordinary commercial um, sort of industry that sprung up around it. And it was, you know, this was a global craze. This was happening all across the world. And after the discovery of radium-based luminous paint, companies like the U.S. Radium Company began making glow-in-the-dark watches, as, as we learned. Um, how popular were these products at the time, and how profitable were these companies? Hugely profitable. I mean, I found when I was researching my book about the Radium Girls, you know, I actually was able to go through some of the company files. So I found some of the invoices and that sort of thing. And, you know, you're talking in, you know, this sort of early 20th century, you know, a single order would be for $500,000. So, you know, we're talking millions and millions of dollars in today's values. Wow. Um, so it was immensely profitable and lucrative. Um, and in terms of, uh, sorry, I've just lost my train of thought. Uh, what was your other question? Sorry, you asked about lucrative and you asked about something else. Sorry. Um, how popular they were. Oh, well, popular. Yes, hugely. And um, so at the time uh, we're talking about, you know, um, initially, originally the paint was um, invented sort of, uh, you know, early in the, in the 20th century and it was really exploited during the First World War. So the radium girls were using the luminous paint to paint watches and clocks, you know, wristwatches for the soldiers. Uh, they would use it to light up the instruments, uh, you know, the dashboards of ships and planes and automobiles. And that obviously, because of the wartime boom, meant that, you know, production just absolutely rocketed during the First World War. So largely to begin with, it had a sort of military exploitation to it. After the First World War ended and peacetime frivolity came in, uh, luminous paint became even more popular. People would use it to sort of paint buttons on their slippers, for example, so that you could find your slippers in the dark with this glow in the dark paint. And they used it for theatre seats and cinema seats and things like that so that you could, you know, find your seat in the dark when you would arise, arrive at these theatres. So it had a hugely popular, um, you know, uh, you know, captured the popular imagination, basically. And eventually the companies actually started selling, you know, DIY kits as well. You could buy your own radium paint to paint at home as well. So that's how popular it was. Why were these women, uh, the young women and the girls then targeted to be dial painters? What were they paid? And uh, how did they compare to other factory jobs at the time? This was known as the elite job for the poor working girls and it was solely a female workforce only women dial painted and it also from my research was largely white as well um, the women came from poor working class backgrounds and they were paid by the number of dials that they painted every day but the most skilled workers could take home an extraordinary pay packet they were paid more than three times the average factory floor worker and the top workers earned more than um they were in the top five percent of female wage earners nationally so it was an incredibly lucrative profession 
why women, why young teenage girls in particular? Well, it was very delicate uh, sort of handiwork that they had to do, you know, the smallest pocket watch, um, you know, we're sort of talking millimetres for the dials that they're painting, the numbers that they're painting on the dials. And I think actually the hands, you know, the small hands of sometimes teenage or prepubescent women sometimes were actually very suited to that, you know, the nature of the work. So I think that's largely why it attracted that workforce. Some people have theorised that perhaps they targeted these women because they were easy to exploit, because they wouldn't ask questions. But actually, I found in my research that the women did ask questions. And when they were told to put their paintbrushes laden with radioactive paint into their mouths, May Cubberley, for example, who's one of the women I write about in the book, she said the first thing we asked was, does this stuff hurt you? Mm. And it's only because the company reassured them that the women then continued with the lip pointing practice they were instructed to follow. And can you please explain to our listeners what lip pointing is? Of course. Well, as crazy as it seems to us today, knowing what we know now about radioactivity and how radioactive radium is, the women were taught to put their paintbrushes between their lips to make a fine point. So they would essentially sort of suck on the bristles of the brush so that it would taper. And that would obviously give them a fine point on the brush to do those sort of single millimetres of the numbers that they're painting on every dial that they do. Uh, The women say they would sometimes, some women would, you know, suck the brush on every single number as they would paint those 12 numbers around the clock face. Other women would only lip point, you know, two or three times per dial. And when did the women start getting wind that they were potentially working with a very dangerous substance? Well, not for years and years and years. And that that was sort of the crux of their battle, really, because even once they started getting sick, which did actually take years because radium poisoning, it turns out, is a very insidious poisoning. So it takes years Mm. for any symptoms to show. And when those symptoms do start to show, they start very innocuously, really, you know, just a sort of aching back or a sore foot or, you know, a, a sore tooth, for example. And all the women as well, had different symptoms. So it wasn't like they all suddenly started suffering from the same thing. And so it was easy to draw the line between the women's work and their ailments. They often suffered from from different things. Um, And so it took a long time for that connection to be made. And even when the connection was made, the companies would fight it tooth and nail to, you know, they didn't want to admit responsibility for hurting the women. They didn't want that very lucrative industry that I described earlier to come crashing down around their ears. And so for the women actually to find out that they were working with a very dangerous substance took, took we're, we're talking probably about a decade, you know, before anyone actually sort of officially said, this is the problem. Now, the flip side of that is that the women are being told it's safe for them um, to use, that they should put the paintbrushes in their mouths. They obviously can see themselves if they go into the drugstore that there are radium products. The flip side is that actually from the turn of the century, from sort of 1901, actually people did know radium was dangerous. They did know that it could destroy human tissue. Um, My book actually opens with a prologue um, with a scientist receiving a radiation burn from a vial of radium that he keeps in his waistcoat pocket. And so they knew that radium was dangerous, but they thought only large amounts 
would kill a man. And we do know that it was killing people early in the 20th century, but they thought it was a large amount. And so one of the sort of most shocking things I think I discovered in my research is that the radium girls in their dial painting studios are putting the paintbrushes in their mouths, literally next door in the same company's laboratories. The lab workers are issued with safety equipment, lead aprons and ivory tipped tongs because the company know that radium is dangerous. They believe that the small amounts the girls are using are not only safe, but beneficial to health. But when you dig into why they think that, the scientific research that said so was funded by the radium companies who were looking for scientific knowledge, uh, proof that all their products were safe. And so, of course, they sort of found the answer that they were looking for. And it was research funded by them that pronounced that radium was apparently safe, when, of course, we all know that was a total lie and it, it wasn't safe at all. So who was the first dial painter to die from radium poisoning? Uh, her name was Molly Maggia. Um, she was a brilliant uh, young woman, immensely skilled at her work. She actually moved out of her family home because she was able to afford to live on her own. She boarded with other women in a women's boarding house. Um, and she first started to get sick, um, sort of really the first symptoms started to show sort of 1920, 1921. And she passed away in September 1922. Um, in her case, she had gone to a dentist because her mouth was sore. She had aching teeth. Uh, the dentist pulled the teeth, hoping that that would solve the problem. But then the next tooth started to hurt. And then the next tooth until Molly didn't have to go to the dentist to have her teeth pulled anymore because they simply fell out on her own. And eventually this aggressive poisoning consumed not only all her teeth and her mouth and her jawbone, but it spread to the tissues of her throat. And she ended up dying from a hemorrhage um, of the jugular vein. Uh, it was a really horrible, painful way to go. Um, and yeah, she was the first young woman to die. A, a real tragedy. Every death is a real tragedy. Yeah. And what was the stated cause of death for her? Well, as I say, she was the first radium girl to die. So the doctors really didn't know what was going on at this point. And unfortunately, she was treated by a dentist who conducted a test and basically messed it up. And he said she had syphilis. And so she was buried with the understanding that she had died of syphilis, which is, of course, a sexually transmitted disease and all the, you know, moral connotations that that has for a young woman and for her family. And when the uh, I, I believe I read that when the U.S. radium company uh, got, got wind of this, they started saying that that's what was actually happening. Is that correct? Yes. And I mean, having, you know, having had one young woman supposedly die of this, it was very easy to cast aspersions on the other young women who were trying to attribute blame to the radium company. Um, and, you know, as still happens today, there was essentially slut shaming and people not wanting to listen to the women, you know, dismissing them as bad women. Um, and yeah, it, 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 Molly was sort of used as a scapegoat and her reputation was completely ravaged by the radium company. And they used her case 
to cast doubt on the claims that the other women, including Molly's own sisters, who later were part of the landmark legal fights um, against these radium companies, um, they use Molly's case to try and discredit the other women. So let, can we, uh, before we start talking about all the uh, the, the girls who actually fought this, um, mm. how, how were the health officials and the scientists, um, what was their take even after people were starting to visibly get sick? Were they doing anything? Were they funded well, the, by any of these companies? What was going on <laughs> behind the scenes? The The short answer is, those in authority were not really doing anything. You know, for example, Catherine Sharp, one of the key radium girls, her cousin passed away from radium poisoning. And Catherine went and filed, um, you know, a memo with the Department of Health to say, you know, this, ne- this company needs looking into, you know, she was sick herself and, um, you know, her cousin had died of it. She knew other women were sick, but nothing was done um, even when after this, you know, memo had been filed even after dozens of young women are getting sick the turning point in the medical investigation occurred in June 1925 and this was years after girls you know I I mentioned Molly first died in September 1922 so we're talking years later now and several women had passed away by this point but in June 1925 the first male employee of the radium firm died and at that point They conducted an autopsy. They determined that he had been killed by the radium that he'd worked with. And that was the turning point in the case for the medical authorities to start investigating. Now, you mentioned doctors and behind the scenes and what was going on. While the girls are battling to get recognition and to get independent medical professionals to assess their cases and adjudicate on what's really happening, the company is fighting tooth and nail to, you know, really stop the truth coming out so they are covering up reports and they are hiring doctors to tell the women that they're fine to put out false statements um to sort of act as a you know don't look this way look this way you know they're sort of almost a sort of magician you know sort of sleight of hand thing so this doctor is lying to the women and is you know putting out false statements to try and discredit the reality on the ground and try and discredit the work of the genuine and independent medical professionals that are uh, you know properly investigating at last now i, I, I will will we'll, this is a two-parter question i guess mm-hmm. when, when does when do the legalities uh start when when do the women actually how, how do they manage to get representation how did they decide to actually fight this, uh, even though this is the other part, there was a lot of sexism at play. I'm assuming at the time, and uh, most women were not were being struggle were struggling to be heard. Mm. So, how um, did they combat that, and then eventually fight? Well, it was very difficult. I mean, I, I've mentioned here the medical battle. You know, even to get medical recognition that what they're suffering from is an industrial disease that their jobs are to blame, uh, you know, as often happens. And that this ties into the second part of your question, you know, when women claim medical problems, you know, it's all too easy to dismiss them as hysteric. Uh, and that happens even today, you know, a woman goes mm-hmm. to a doctor with a complaint and, you know, we see that happening time and again. So the medical problems 
were initially difficult enough for someone to say, actually, scientifically, this is happening to the women. Finding representation was an entirely other battle because, you know, this is the early 20th century. We're talking about, you know, health and safety laws and not what they are today. You know, it's partly thanks to the Radium Girls that we have much more robust health and safety laws today. Um, to poison your workers, you know, is in some places was, you know, not illegal. Um, and so that was sort of one of the battles. They actually had to make it, um, you know, illegal so that they had a case to fight. And the other problem they had was uh, something called the statute of limitations. So in New Jersey, where, you know, the first legal fight is focused, um, they had a statute of limitations of two years from the point of injury before you could file suit. Now, as I mentioned, it takes years for radium poisoning to show itself. You know, most women were healthy for, you know, five years or more after the time they worked in the studio. Um, so a statute of limitations of two years meant that every lawyer, even if they felt for the women, believed the women, which was another hurdle, they just felt there wasn't a legal way to get around this problem. And it wasn't until the women encountered a very sharp, very young lawyer called Raymond Berry, who thought of a way round this sort of legal roadblock that the women were able to pursue a legal case. Um, and I have to say, it's largely thanks to an amazing woman, an amazing radium girl called Grace Fryer, that the radium girls were able to continue with their case. Grace was a brilliant young woman. She actually moved on from dial painting to work in a bank and became head of her department, which in the early 1920s is an astonishing accomplishment. She was a really brilliant, intelligent young woman. She came from a family where her father was a union rep. So she was brought up with politics. You know, she sort of spoke herself about how much having the vote meant to her and that she always went out and voted. So she was political. She thought it was wrong that a company that had injured her and all her friends and had killed, you know, some of her friends at this point was getting away with murder, essentially. And so she fought tirelessly to find a lawyer. She, you know, she kept on banging on the doors and trying every which way that she could to find representation. And finally, she and Barry connected. And from that moment, the spark was born. And, you know, what became known as the trial of the decade uh, was launched and the Radium Girls were able to try and hold this Radium company to account for what they'd done. And what were they, what kind of compensation were they trying to get w with their lawsuits? What, what were they trying to get out of um, this fight? And also, how did it result? Well, I think the key thing for many of the girls actually was a very altruistic battle. Um, you know, Grace Fryer herself spoke about the legal suit and she said, it's not for myself that I'm thinking. I'm thinking more of the hundreds of other girls to whom this may serve as an example. The women were told, uh, as you know, proved in many cases to be accurate, that radium poisoning was fatal. So they weren't fighting for themselves. They were fighting so that this didn't happen to anyone else. Um, so that was a key part of why they were fighting. They, they wanted the recognition because, as I say, the company is still refusing to admit responsibility. You know, you go into the local drugstore, those products are still on sale. Um, so they're fighting for that recognition. They're also fighting because they are impoverished at this point. You know, they've had, you know, thousands of dollars of medical bills um, because, that's the nature of radium poisoning. You know, you have to go and get 
treated you have to be sick you can't work you know if you think about the nature of the poisoning which I'm sure you discussed earlier you know yeah an element in your bones destroying you from the inside out you know literally making holes in your bones of course you can't work it's astonishing that they pursued the legal battle really given how physically weak they were but their spirits were so strong that they did battle on um so they were looking for financial compensation if they could get it so that was to cover medical bills um to cover loss of earnings you know all the usual things that you would expect in a case like this but as i say ultimately the key thing as well was to ensure that other people weren't hurt and that they got that recognition and did they uh get that recognition in the media uh and what was their fate essentially well, the, the answer actually varies. You know, my, my book focuses on two particular centres of dial painting in New Jersey and in Illinois, and there were two mm-hmm. separate court battles. Um, so the women achieved different things at different times. Ultimately, in the end, yes, they do get that recognition. But I think what is really striking is even when the cases of the radium girls came to light with these horrific poisoning, these, you know, deaths of workers handling small amounts of radium, you know, just what is put into radium pills that are being sold. Even at that point, the products didn't stop being on sale. You know, the the Federal Trade Commission didn't halt the production and sale of these radium products. It was only when um, a rich man called Eben Byers died in 1932 that actually the sale of those products was stopped. So, there wasn't the recognition that the girls were sort of hoping for. Um, You know, it seemed that, you know, these poor female workers could be destroyed and no one gave a damn. It was only when a a rich white man, you know, passed away from having consumed these products that finally, you know, that a stop was put on it. So that that's one thing to be aware of. The other thing that I think is really striking is that, Some of the women won settlements and there was justice in the end. There was a declaration of guilt. But the financials that we're talking about are really just a pittance. Um, And one case that still sort of chills me, really, and shocks me is one case that I read about in Connecticut because dial painting was going on all across America. In Connecticut, one woman called Mildred Cardo did win a settlement She was 22 years old when she died. And so it was her young husband. She'd been married only six months when she passed away. So a young husband who received the settlement. And for his wife's death, the amount of money that he was offered by the company was $43.75. Oh, my God. So that's, you know, when we're talking compensation, that's the kind of compensation we're talking about. A handful of women got a handful of high amounts, but most women got nothing or even worse than nothing. You know, it just as I say, it makes me so angry even thinking about it, that that's what they thought a woman's life was worth. What do you think their legacy has uh, become? How did they change the way women in the workforce were treated? Their legacy is astonishing. So in terms of how women specifically are treated, I think I think for me, they act as role models to 
show women that we do need to to fight because no matter how small we are or powerless we may feel you know which is exactly how the radium girls felt you can make a difference and your voice will be heard and it may take decades for that to happen but the truth will out and these women were heard and they did make a difference and they did protect other workers just as they hoped to do and legislation was changed because of them and which protected not only women workers but workers you know actually across the world um, ultimately and their legacy is just extraordinary I, I think there's you know the inspiration that I've talked about there the fact that we can look to them and you know use their spirits as guiding lights to you know inform and inspire our own battles they have left a legacy and safety you know even very quickly after this scandal unfolded you know America then joins the second world war and there's the Manhattan project you know workers using large amounts of radioactive substances not really knowing what the biomedical consequences may be and the lead scientist on the Manhattan project said he was inspired by the radium girls to look into you know, what the dangers may be. And they discovered that the plutonium and uranium were biomedically very similar to radium. And therefore, safety standards were put in place for those workers on the Manhattan Project, directly based on the bodies of the radium girls and the lessons scientists had learned from them. And that legacy didn't just inform the Manhattan Project, but everyone working in the nuclear industries today is protected because of the radium girls and their sacrifice. So you've got that, you've got the legislation, the health and safety laws, and you've got the scientific legacy. Something that not many people know is that actually the radium girls were studied for decades afterwards. So many of them actually didn't succumb to what people thought originally was going to be a fatal poisoning. Many women did die young. But I think actually one of the most surprising aspects of my research was to discover that if a radium girl was lucky enough uh, to get her radium poisoning, for example, in her arm, if her cancerous tumour that began to grow, you know, years after she'd worked in the studio was in her arm, she could have it amputated and that would save her life. So wow. many of these women lived often as cripples, um, for want of a better word, um, but they lived and incredibly altruistically they voluntarily submitted to medical examinations. There was actually a specific centre, uh, the Centre of Human Radiobiology, that was set up to study the radium girls for their full lifespans. And these women submitted to medical tests, to blood tests, to bone marrow biopsies, so that scientists could learn all they could about the internal radiation that these women had experienced. And so thanks to them, you know, the world has this gift of knowledge and it's actually knowledge that is still being felt today. I actually did a Zoom call with uh, some uh, scientists from NASA recently, and they are using the knowledge gained from the radium girls to inform uh, their studies about potential manned missions to Mars. Um, wow. Thinking about the radiation that astronauts will experience on that long journey to a distant planet, we're learning, you know, that the the what the radium girls experienced is informing those futuristic studies now, which is just spine tingling really to think something that happened so long ago is informing humanity's future. These are the many, many legacies of these incredible women, the radium girls. And finally, we always ask our guest expert this question at the end of the day, 
if you had to pick one person or thing, it could be a concept that is to blame for the death of the radium girls, who or what would that be? Given I can choose a concept, I would say greed. I think the company's greed is was ultimately what was to blame because I think what is horrifying about this is to say the the research that so you know allegedly proved radium was safe was driven by greed even once the truth came out and they knew that radium was hurting the women because of their greed they didn't admit to that they didn't put a stop to it immediately and say you know what we didn't really you know we were still experimenting in the early 20th century we didn't really know once they knew they should have stopped it and they didn't because of greed and because of that you know hundreds more women were poisoned and were disfigured and killed by their greed. So I would say greed, I think, is to blame for the deaths of the radium girls. Well, Kate, thank you so much for talking to us and shedding light on this very inspiring and important subject. It's my pleasure. It's always an honor to talk about these women. So thank you all for giving them your attention and your time. (laughs) Thank you, Kate. Thank you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress and anxiety we carry around as we go about our everyday life. At The Alarmist, we know it's always better to say it out loud and talk it through. Whenever I stress about the sinking of the Titanic, I don't sit with those thoughts in a dark room. I turn on the lights and dive right into it. Therapy is a great place to get things off your chest and work through what's really going on. Maybe you can't stop spiraling or catastrophizing. I started therapy over 10 years ago and never looked back. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. 
Heck, we sometimes change our minds and rethink the verdict at The Alarmist. And that's also okay when it comes to therapists. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Alarmist today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Alarmist. With us today, we have producer Clayton Early. Hello. And fact checker Chris Smith. Hi. How about that? I mean, so inspiring. Very, very inspiring. I was just saying off air and Rebecca told me to be quiet and save it for on air. <laughs> I was trying but... to make, uh, uh, <laughs> I was trying to kind of prompt you in a very natural yeah. way, Clayton. <laughs> no, t- speak your truth, Clayton. Everyone, what did yeah. she do? She yelled at you. <laughs> I was just pointing out that the the experience of talking through it initially with our lovely guest, Jane, was kind of depressing like I walked away feeling really kind of bummed about the whole situation but after listening to Kate I feel kind of uh, my spirit has been lifted and it feels like there is some good that's come from it and that the the legacy of these women is really powerful so I feel a lot better thank God for Kate thank God (laughs) (laughs) thank God for Kate and for lifting our spirits still a tragedy but like good for some people making the best out of what we can learn from it Absolutely. I mean, this is why it's so important to consult the experts on history. (laughs) This is why we do it. This is why we do what we do. It's, it's, it, you know, when we're faced or we're looking back at through history, looking through these tragedies, you know, you can come away with a feeling of sort of uh, existential dread. Oh, oh, yeah. Well, I was going to go that way. Yeah, sure. You know, you can come away feeling. (laughs) Uh, but you, just but a what visual image was, right now, Chris and Rebecca well, <laughs> on my Zoom screen are both standing there because they don't have mic stands because they're out of the country and they just look Wait, like they're what? hosting a show in Puerto Rico. And <laughs> yeah, I'm the one audience. Our Excuse you. But, Excuse guys. you. Puerto Rico is still the country. It's still the country. It is. You're right. I mean, out of off the mainland. Yeah. They don't have mic stands I'm, off the mainland. I'm, no. Literally, Can you hear the waves crashing? I'm in the middle of a thought. Right. And yeah, you, that's right. No, go on. Chris. I was just saying it's easy to get feel uh, bummed out when mm-hmm. you just learn just the basics of a tragic event. Yeah. Right. But when you speak to somebody like Kate, who knows the research and knows the details and knows, you know, the facts that come out after it. And, you know, like Clayton's saying, you can feel a little bit more like you have the full picture. Yeah. And, and that's a bit more inspiring and hopeful. This is why we talk to the guest experts. This is why we should actually start asking our guest experts, should I feel bummed about this? Well, or should I? Some subjects, you know. Should I have a sense of hope? Some subjects, you know, we're able to get a better grasp on in the earlier episode. But some some you really need to talk to an expert. And this was so massive. And and the scope of this was so big, how many people suffered from it and how you know, how these companies took advantage of so many people that mm. um, you're, you're some, you're left with like this, like you were saying, Chris, an existential dread of like, well, well then what are we doing here? It, you know, yeah, who, do we trust? Makes you, who do we trust? We, we can't Where trust do we the go? Yeah, and so like, we can't trust the government. <laughs> um, versus so, like a, a freak accident or uh, one of these like, things that just happen like natural disasters, you know, this, this felt, uh, intentional. This well, felt mm-hmm. con- 
concocted and evil in that sense. Right. Well, what Kate was saying, too, was that, you know, when they eventually brought this legal battle Mm -hmm. uh, to the courts and got attention, it was a battle for recognition. And, you know, and it was a battle for not only women, but anybody in the workforce um, who struggles to have a voice because um, Mm – these are, you know, uh, especially in poor people, poor, um, low wage earners that are fighting for, uh, their rights and for recognition. And so it was really significant. Um, this moment, she called it the trial of the decade, which I think I'm sure that's a apt description. And I think what's, when we talked about this in the initial episode too, like it just seems like a precursor to so many things that continue to happen. Hence our mention of the Sacklers who made it onto the board who were completely unrelated, but it's just Mm. like this stuff continues, which is why I think maybe you do feel that sense of dread because it's like, wow, we, so this happened and we're, we haven't learned our lesson yet. People are still intentionally. And also what else is happening? What else don't we know about? What are the thousand other stories of these industrial poisoning and these dangers that take place in the workplace that we don't know about we don't um but that that is the clayton what you're talking about is the the why it's like yes we can feel hope and also we must stay vigilant you know yes because there have been there has we made progress you know Mm. there were safety measures that are now in place and continue to be in place the more we learn and all these things but you're right it's like you have to keep asking questions Mm. you have to stay vigilant because what's the next one gonna be Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. yeah all right i I think this grace fryer uh young woman i was thinking like she's like the aaron brockovich of her time just like (laughs) really yes. walking around like I'm finding the lawyer and we are bringing this case in like I'm going to get justice. I love that. And I also love just to think that like the, the little bit of the radium girls is up with like NASA astronauts who are <laughs> safe in space going to Mars because they helped pave the way for that safety. That's Amazing. Cool. Amazing to think of it that way. It's almost like that glow, that radium glow, which we now know is so, so dangerous. Right. <laughs> It's almost like the the girls really do have that glow in a in a good way. Their oh. light is shining. Yep. You're saying you're trying to say the, they're shining from outer space or something? No, they're they're, just, they're stars. Us. They're, they're all legacy. stars. They're stars. Yeah. Aww, their legacy sh- nice. shines. Yeah. Um, you know what? They're not. But, which I just can we just mention this again? I just can't believe this. When she was saying how the syphilis thing, it's like amazing to me that the company could try and could convince the public that, no, they're not all suffering from this product. Like they're all just sluts. <laughs> Slut <laughs> that's shaming. Ins- and people, yeah, like literally, they're just mean, like, no, they all are just having sex and getting syphilis. Like that's, it's, well, it's such an so easy stupid. way to shame people and shut, shut them up, try and shut them up. Always, right? always be weary when someone is trying to slut shame. Well, it's mm-hmm. also like, Amen and thank you, sexual revolution, for taking out the and, and creating the term sex positive because mm-hmm. I feel like back then mm. with when everyone was so uptight and everyone was like, uh, you know, whatever, in America at least, I know this still takes place all over the world, but when people were, you know, just sort of uptight about sex, they would use slut shaming as like a 
that right. was like a tool to yeah. Yeah. like bring harm on people. No more. No. Scarlet I mean, it's still ha- it still happens, but yes, it's definitely it's not <laughs> as you know intense. Um, I just also wanted to say shout out to uh, Kate's uh, her selection for who's to blame, which is she went straight to greed, which is yes. a as we know, which we had we had on the board, we had it up we there. Did. Remind us what we, f- we ended up choosing, Clayton. So we chose American corporatism. Um, no, I'm sorry. We chose Joseph Kelly. My apologies. Because oh, he, no and boy. we talked about this. We talked about, do we want to get a specific person or do we want to go broad? Because we, we were kind of circling around capitalism, yeah. corporatism. We felt like we, they were already in there. But we did fold greed into American corporatism, which got the big slap. Right. I think, you know, I, and I understand why we did this, because we wanted to be specific. And we right. also wanted to not let these people get away because they always get away, you know. Right. But I right. do think, uh, I think we should change it. And I think it should be, you know, greed, uh, corporate, or I, maybe like corporate greed. I mean, just greed. Should, get, should go to jail. Absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, I'm on board with that I every know. day, all day. You love that. Mm-hmm. Um, and d- what about Joseph be- Kelly? Then does he get the big slap, or do we keep? We're gonna keep him in jail. We're gonna do a double. Okay. Wow! <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. Wow! Because well, I you- think we've got greed in there anyway, so it would be like tacking on a, sen- a longer sentence to their. Yeah, I-, I think we 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 double down on this one. Great, um, because I think it deserves it. It's so, a big enough stage. Yeah, a lot yeah. of people lost their lives and, and literal limbs to this. So why not throw a couple people in jail? And let this be a warning sign. Greed is such a general thing. It could, it could seep in, uh, you know, ju- still to this day, we are not safe. And to also, I would suggest that we give the big clap to Grace Fryer and the Radium Girls. I agree. For... I like their sacrifices mm-hmm. and for fighting, for fighting back against the, you know, just Leviathan that mm-hmm. is corporatism and it was greed. Very brave and strong of them. So Grace Fryer and the Radium Girls, you're getting the big clap. <laughs> Corporate greed, you're also going to the alarmist jail. Get in there. Get in there. And I'm sure you're going to try and get out and you're going to try and seep out. But we've got we've got our eye on you. Okay. We've got good security. <laughs> now, um, before we go, Clayton, um, I, I, I just a tiny bit of housekeeping. I think it's important. And I just want to encourage our listeners to keep reviewing and rating the show. And I I, I believe there was a... a, a, a a new review that came out, you know, hit the stands recently. Here, Clayton, let's see. Okay. Oh boy. Oh this boy. is this is from Someone's Heather been busy. T sixty six. Heather hmm. T sixty six in quotes. I haven't seen this yet, so okay. this news to me. And this subject says, Thanks for making Clayton the producer. Five stars. Interesting. Hmm. Interesting. I love Clayton's contribution. If Amanda can't be the con- producer then i'm glad it's clayton he's just great and i'm so glad he's on your team hands up and praise the emoji of the hands up and praise wow um, so it looks wow. like clayton has subscribed to apple premium plus no way <laughs> you pay the extra i'm blushing because i literally don't know how to make a second account 
I wouldn't even know how to do that. Interesting. So, Heather, Interesting. I, whoever you are, thank you. That's very kind. Unless it's Chris who's trying to throw us off the track. Could be Chris. Throwing off the scent. That would be a good move. No, if I was really worried If you were about- really smart and snaky, you would have done that. I don't think Chris is... <laughs> You are smart, Chris, but you're not snaky. You know what? I, I think I'm going to go ahead and say I think that's a real one, Clayton. Congratulations! <laughs> it looks like somebody's Thank happy you. you're the producer. I don't know. And you know what? That makes two of us because I'm happy you're the producer too. Oh. <laughs> Thanks, okay. Guys. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for your reviews. And uh, please continue. They're really important. Uh, they help us keep the show going. And stay tuned because next week we're going to be covering. A very famous female poisoner, Mary Ann Cotton. Erios. Powered by ACAST. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.